Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Hey, Adam, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tara. Yeah, so it's so great to talk to you because we talked before Expo West and before the whole cancellation of Expo West because you were, I was on the selection committee for the pitch event and you were my mentee. So you were the person that I was working with to prepare for the pitch and you needed very little help. I had to say. Thanks. Um, Sometimes people need a lot of help. You needed like zero help. Um, But it was so good to talk to you. And I, um, we haven't talked since. So here we are months later. So you get to um, start, I think, by just introducing yourself and scout for the audience. Yeah, for sure. So I'm the co-founder and CEO at Scout. Um, we're a North American craft cannery, and our mission is to be the most trusted seafood cannery in North America while reducing food waste and protecting our ocean. So we're an impact-driven brand. Um, you know, we're all about celebrating the seafood that we have on both the coasts of, of Canada and the U.S. And, and really trying to localize canned food and, and break it out of the commodity category that we've been used to for, for many, many decades. Um, so my co-founder is Chef Charlotte Langley. She is a seafood chef um, and the chef ambassador for the Marine Stewardship Council and does a lot of work in ocean and seafood sustainability on the consumer front. So we're really just trying to, you know, move more seafood into the center of the plate uh, for American consumers. Um, So it's a great nutritious product and consumption is actually lower than a lot of other countries. So we're just trying to shape up the the seafood category. Yeah. So when I saw your product as part of the pitch events, I got really excited because, um, and it's interesting, call yourself a cannery, right? Like the, the whole canned fish market in the United States is like, I, I use the word moribund, right? Like I, it's the same cans of tuna that I ate when I was a kid. And that was not 10 years ago. <laughs> so and like this, category has not changed in decades in the United States. No, it stayed really stale. And a lot of these bigger brands, I don't know if I should mention them. I'm sure your audience knows who they are, but you know, none of those, those large brands are American owned businesses anymore. Most of the seafood that you're finding in a can in your conventional grocery store shelves is, you know, it's sourced from overseas in the South China Sea and in Southeast Asia. Um, a lot of that is sourced on the, you know, pretty, pretty brutal supply chains where the, the human condition mm-hmm. um, is, is pretty terrible. And that gives us the falsified cost of, you know, two or $3 for a can of tuna. Right. So we've all gotten used to essentially tuna and salmon and oil and water, and it's been the same way since forever. And the biggest innovation that we had seen in the category, you know, in the last 10 years really was just moving tuna into a plastic pouch. And we all know that plastic is a major ocean polluter and we need to prevent that um, from continuing onwards. So there's a lot of convoluted, broken things in the kind of traditional seafood canning industry. And we're really kind of a response to everything they're not doing correctly. Right. So you're kind of the not brands, right? We are not doing the same thing they're doing on any level. (laughs) 
um, which is a cool position to be in in the market. Talk about differentiation, right? Totally. Um, and yeah. I mean, the, the repeat SKUs and having the same products, I mean, it's tuna in different packaging, different colors, you know, bright dancing fish on the label, a lot of strange label claims there. And we, we really want to increase seafood consumption and diversify the species that are, that are being consumed by American consumers. We need more biodiversity um, mm-hmm. in seafood. So we're not creating that kind of same monolithic, you know, food culture that we have in chicken, beef and pork, which has already happened with salmon and tuna. Um, right. So we really got to we got to break away and make other seafood products more interesting. I mean, there's hundreds of delicious species, both sea plant based and you know fin fish, mollusk, shellfish that we can be consuming. But American consumers are pretty timid. They're intimidated about you know cook and how to cook seafood at home. Right. So we have to break that stigma so that we can we can get more diversity going on. Well, that, and that's one thing about canned fish is is I'm assuming um, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but you don't need to cook it ever, do you? Or do you have to, is it cooked in the canning process? Yeah. So essentially the canning process, you know, it's, it's, it's old. It's been around for over 130 years. Um, you know, essentially you're sucking all of the air out of the can, the, the, the seafood and our additional ingredients go in the can raw. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the air sucked out with the vacuum seal and the edges of the can are crimped. And then those sealed cans go into the, what we call the retort unit. Um, think of them as like giant pressure cookers and then the food is cooked in the can. Um, right. And then they're free of any pathogens or any opportunity for any contamination whatsoever. Right. So there's no preservatives, there's no additives, and you're getting an all-natural product mm-hmm. um, with an extended shelf life, which is uh, important to have with the food base we have going on right now. Right, right, right. So, so um yeah, I was just thinking the only innovation that I can even think of in my head for canned tuna was the lid that has the, the you know, you can open it without an opener, without a can opener as the little key. Easy thing. tops. The easy top. That I knew there would be a word for that. <laughs> yeah, it's an easy top, right? So um, does all that happen? So it, like with, with tuna, and then we'll get to the, how you do it. But does that all putting in the can thing happen on, uh, in, a, in a plant that the, the fish, the, the boats come into? Or does it happen on the boat? No, it actually happens in a, in a production facility. It does. Um, okay. That would be really cool to, to can right on the boat. Wouldn't but, it be cool? Um, I mean, I, I asked cool. that question because there were all kinds of things happening on with seafood on boats. And I was like, well, I'm going to ask this question. <laughs> it may sound crazy, but. Well, a yeah. lot of seafood is IQF, like, you know, individually quick frozen on the vessels directly. That's so what that I was. To that freshness. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you need some more substantial equipment uh, to, to do the canning I right on the see. boat. It's IQF that's happening. That's. That's right, because I, I interviewed somebody who was um, doing a frozen fish product, and they were that's what I learned, that they were freezing it on the boat, right? So, okay, so they bring the fish in, go into a manufacturing facility where that happens, and it's, it's sort of like the marine equivalent of monoculture, right? Because they're just... Yeah, and tuna, and tuna for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tuna is, if we, if we talk about like market size and I'll get back to a bit more of the production of, you know, the market size just in the United States alone, as well as Canada for, for canned seafood is above 2.7 billion. So it's growing. Wow. And then about 1.6 of that 1.6 billion is tuna, canned tuna. 
Yeah. So canned tuna is actually the second most consumed seafood product in the United States behind shrimp. Huh. So you have shrimp as an ingredient, a commodity, you know, like the fresh or frozen version. And then you actually have canned tuna as number two. And that doesn't account for things like, you know, tuna loins or tuna steaks or sashimi grade product being sold. So sure. tuna is still the, the big tuna in the industry, but canned tuna specifically is a beloved product in America for sure. Yeah, yeah. So when you started your company, you, you, you set out to disrupt this whole thing, right? Yeah, we took a look at the industry and seafood, consumer packaged goods in general. And I mean, you know, what comes to mind, right? You've got frozen fish sticks. You may have some, you know, marinated fillets, fresh or frozen from the grocery store. You know, you'll see some salmon jerkies out there and then a bunch of, you know, tuna and salmon and, you know, some of the European brands. But seafood CPG in the United States is pretty unexciting and the industry is relatively complacent. They're pretty disconnected from what the more engaged, you know, natural products, health and wellness focused consumers looking for. Um, and often you'll see the use of a lot of like, you know, ocean imagery and captains and boats and, you know, colorful fish and all of these bright kind of uh, branding elements. But a lot of those brands are just kind of using them almost like greenwashing or ocean washing. I mean, a, a lot of these brands don't connect anything that they do back to ocean health, you know, climate action, you know, the human condition and global seafood trade. So these are a lot of the issues that we want to bring forward to consumers in a way that's really healthy and positive to explain, you know, this is what's going on globally. And here's why, you know, enjoying seafood from, you know, the Canadian and U.S. coastlines where there's a very short supply chain um, with full traceability on the product is important. Um, So we're definitely, you know, a challenger brand to the, the big the big canned seafood brands that are out there. Well, and and now that we're in COVID, one of the things that I've um, learned um, is how much seafood is, um, you know, sort of domestically caught seafood goes into restaurants and food service. So to have you doing something that's bringing it to the retail consumer is a pl- is an added benefit because of what's going on with COVID. Absolutely, and I mean. You know, 90%, it's a pretty staggering number, but 90% of the seafood that's consumed in the U.S. is imported. And there used to be very healthy, abundant fisheries, very developed, um, you know, that were around for decades. And then over the last, you know, 40, 50 years, they've really just disappeared. Um, Mm -hmm. Part of that's regulation. Part of that is just, you know, processing costs overseas. It's also, you know, that age-old problem of shipping product out having a processed overseas and shit back, which is right. mind blowing. So yes, the, the local seafood consumption primarily is driven by things like community supported, you know, uh, like fishery buy-ins. Um, so you'll find stuff at your farmer's markets, your local independence, and then a lot of food service. And outside mm-hmm. of that, you know, product that you're finding in conventional grocery and Costco, um, it, most definitely in the canning, uh, you know, section of the grocery store, you're not finding local product. Right. Right. So your fish, where does it come from? So we've got our, you know, a couple of first skews here that, we've, that we're launching with. Um, so we have Atlantic Canadian lobster, which is sourced just off the coasts of PEI, Prince Edward Island, in the Maritimes, just uh, tucked above Maine. Um, so that comes right up to our facility. And then the mussels are in a smoked paprika and fennel tomato sauce with a bit of chili and garlic. And um, those are sourced about 30 minutes down the road from our production facility in, in PEI and they're, they're certified organic. And then we've got, um, farm raised 
uh, rainbow trout, which is sourced from Ontario, um, and that's preserved with some cold-pressed sunflower oil and dill. So we work directly with the fishery partners when it's wild harvested, um, and those are always MSC certified. Um, and then we, you know, we work closely with our, our farm partners in aquaculture, um, you know, monitoring everything from the feed, the harvesting process, you know, uh, if there's any use of antibiotics or hormones, of course, we, we wouldn't work with those producers. Uh, but we're not, we're not sourcing our seafood from, you know, commodity markets or distributors. We, we have direct relationships. So those are the first three. Um, you know, we, we intentionally chose species that are recognizable, that are enjoyed with consumers, yeah. but start to kind of push the envelope to be more preventive um, and to start kind of weaning consumers away from tuna. That being said, we do have tuna launching in August. It's a, uh-huh. kind of a necessary gateway fish, if you yeah. think about it that way, to kind of build trust and credibility with the product that consumers are already very familiar with and enjoy. You know, and, you know, once they've tasted some delicious tuna from Scout, then they can they can move on to some other species. So, the right. tuna is caught between Washington State and British Columbia. Um, so they're they're dual citizens of Canada and the U.S. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it's MSC certified, of course. All of our wild product is, and um, we've got some organic olive oil that's preserved and uh, and a garden pesto blend that we've created. So those are the the first five products that uh, are available in market. So okay, so there's so many things in there to to talk about. So first of all, um, what's MSC certification? Mm-hmm. So MSC is the Marine Stewardship Council. They're a global governing organization backed by science and on-boat auditors um, that, you know, monitor the, the health of fish stocks and, and seafood stocks and essentially rate um, and certify fisheries. So the tuna, as an example, the entire fishery of over 200 boats in that fleet between Washington State and British Columbia is a certified MSC tuna fishery. So the albacore that's being sourced is abundant. It's, it's a healthy population. The amount that's being harvested from the ocean is monitored quite carefully, um, and if there's ever a you know drop in population or if there's you know anything happening within that species, then that certification should be removed. So when you see MSC certification, it's a blue eco label, little blue fish. Um, you can trust that that seafood is sustainably sourced. Um, there's some other recommendation programs like the Monterey Bay Aquarium and you know mm-hmm. Seafood Watch and a few others. But um, with Charlotte's work with MSC as the chef ambassador we really align with that organization and they, they tend to use the most science and data to back up their certification. Cool. Okay. So, so it's certified. Then the next thing is um, your products have things like sauce with them. Like to me, that is, it is so um, category changing, right? Like, so we're not just going to have the fish. We're going to actually put some things around the fish and with the fish that make the fish delicious. Totally. It goes back to our, our direction and our strategy as a brand to make seafood more appealing and to, you know, kind of break down the barriers of how to prepare and eat it. When you're eating it out of the can, it's already cooked. It's totally shelf stable. You know, you're able to use it as an ingredient to the meal, or you can just eat it really simply with some crackers or some bread. Um, so if we, we take kind of our, I guess, you know, North American lens off for a second and we jump over to Europe, you know, the, the culture around preserving seafood is so much more developed and much more artisanal and is considered a much higher quality than anything mm. that we're used to here at home. So in countries like Spain and Portugal, France, really leaders in preserving seafood, they've been 
bringing the best of catch to be preserved seasonally so it can be enjoyed throughout the year and for time time to come. Um, it's much more similar to charcuterie, you know, the, the process of, you know, aging cheese, you know, wine. Um, it's really about the craft of preservation and, you know, higher quality oils, herbs, and spice blends are used to really enhance the seafood, uh, make it, make it more dynamic and flavorful. So we're really, you know, bringing that kind of conserva culture from Europe and then applying that to dietary preferences and taste profiles for the North American consumer. Hmm. So in Europe, the the idea of buying canned fish that came that was canned with the olive oil and the spices or or some light sauce or something that is that's something that's been in their um their you know dietary profile for a long time. It sounds like long time. I mean, yeah. you've got a hundred nonas in the in the you know processing facilities in Portugal that are all stuffing little you know, uh, stuffed squid into a ragu sauce and perfectly uh, placing them uh. into a can and sealing them. So it's, it's really hands-on, hand-cut, hand-packed, you know, very methodical and intentional with the additional ingredients that are being used, they're very recipe-driven. And that's, that's the same for us. We, you know, we hand-cut, we hand-pack everything. You know, our sunflower oil comes from a fourth-generation family farm in Ontario. Um, mm. we're, we're really specific with the ingredients that we choose to highlight the seafood with. So do you have your own facility? In Prince Edward Island, we partnered with a lobster um, operation that's been around since the, the 30s. Uh -huh. um, and there's actually a historic site where there used to be an old cannery. So lobster season's only four months. Yeah. And uh, we produce our products uh, the other eight months of the year. Um, so that is uh, a partnership. And then on the West Coast, we work with a co-packer um, okay. that does a lot of private label for groceries. But we design... And create all of our own products in our own test kitchen before we, we move them over to commercialize. Sure, sure. So um, what a great thing for the lobster industry, too, to have you co-locating like that. Yeah, and it's been wild. Like the, I mean, we've only launched on, on June 8th, uh, so we're almost a month today in market. Uh -huh. um, and lobster has been wildly successful as the most popular product. It's something wow. that people really have for like special occasions, celebration, fancy yeah. dinners, you know, or like you're getting that super special treat of a lobster roll if you're visiting the coast. Um, but we're kind of democratizing lobster in a way, you know, yeah. you've got the equivalent of a, a one pound lobster, you know, worth of meat in the can. Um, oh. And you can really easy, easily throw it into some pasta. You could even warm it up on your barbecue where you're grilling a steak and have a quick surf and turf. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a really fun product and we can, you know, have people, you know, eating lobster in occasions where it wasn't really that accessible before. Right. So this is so interesting because I work with um, the folks at Atlantic Sea Farms and they're, they're taking oh, yeah. lot and I, you probably know them, right? But they're, they're for, sure. for the benefit of others, they, they're um, um, teaching lobster farmers in Maine to raise kelp um, in part because of climate change is um, changing yes. the ocean temperature, right? And making and it's the eroding lobster. the lobster shells. Yeah. 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 And so they, they were doing that because of that. But then I, in, in talking to them, I learned about, I mean, some astonishingly high percentage of the lobster that is sold is, is sold in restaurants that have all closed down. So the lobster industry is really hurting right now. 
Yes, it's definitely been an interesting year for lobster. I mean, between Canada and the U.S., it is a major export product, uh, especially to Europe and Asia, Asia specifically. So it has been a, a challenging time for the industry, but it is a celebrated product in many parts of the world and it will bounce back. We've kind of been here before, oh, sure. but I think what Sea Farms is doing is, is awesome to kind of help diversify some of these fishermen, you know, to, to help farming. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, no, it's amazing what they're doing. Cause in effect, you know, you think it's hard to teach Americans how to eat fish, try to get them to eat kelp, you know, <laughs> <That's> all, <laughs> huh, we don't have the Asian culture of eating seaweed here. Right. So it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Well, we but, used to though. That's what's interesting is that we, we really used to have a very healthy sea plant, um, you know, diet, especially with like other things like, like mollusks and, and oysters. And then sure. we, we had uh, the consumption of, of seaweed, um, but it disappeared, right? And that's why, right. again, going back to chefs and consumers trusting seafood out of the home, you know, for others to prepare it for them. Right. And their partnership with David Chang is a, is a great example of that kind of power of a chef and the narrative that they can have um, mm-hmm. to move more sea plant-based products to the center of the plate. And that's their yeah. partnership with Sweet Green. And David Chang is, is, a, is a really great strategic opportunity. Yeah, no, they've been, they're doing great. It's great. I love that project. And and um, but but what what made me think about them and what they're doing is what you said about um, you launched the lobster you know thing uh, product a month ago and it's taken off and it's now your one, number one bestseller because mm-hmm. I I mean I I grew up on the East Coast so I grew up eating um, lobster and so then I moved to the Midwest and there was there's a fish market in Madison the only place you could get a live lobster. And I would do it. I would buy live lobsters for a very special occasion because they are like really expensive in the Midwest. Um, and then you have to, but you have these live lobsters and you have to like deal with, with the whole, you know, getting the water and putting the live lobster in the thing. And it is a production to, to cook live lobster, right? Oh yeah. It's part of the joy of it though, too. We actually have a, a video I'll share afterwards. It's called how to, how to process a lobster. So chef walks a, a friend of hers through how to actually cook and then take it apart properly. So you're getting all the meat. Oh, interesting. Well, I would love to see that because I know I'm not doing it right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I learned that, I mean, growing up in the East coast, um, we would, it was a special occasion thing then too, but we'd go to restaurants and have, you know, live lobster. And that, that was the extent of my learning about how to, how to actually eat a live lobster. But there's a lot of tricks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you'd get those bibs, right? That, cause they're so messy. Classic you know? East coast. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the plastic bib you'd sit with. So you, now you have it, and you said it's almost a, the equivalent amount of meat of a one-pound lobster. Yeah, by the time you remove the shell and extract the the, you know, the, the meat that you're going to want to eat, it's uh, right. essentially equivalent to the can, and it's uh, more affordable. Right. Um, so, you know, I think the experience of enjoying a live lobster, that's a magical, really fun thing to do with friends and family, and uh, yeah. that's not going to go anywhere, but, you know, it's also a really great product and a really unique ingredient to use in so many dishes, so... Um, you know, folks are using lobster in so many different ways uh, across many dishes and, and really like celebrating it as an ingredient. Yeah. No, I, I find this super exciting because I, I mean, one of the things that I learned from Atlantic Sea Farms is 
there's this temporary place we're in right now where apparently the lobster catch for the next some number of years is going to be outstanding because of the ocean you know the we the ocean has temperatures gone up but not too much but you know there's this like window here and then it's going to go to hell but in the meantime we're going to have lobster and um expanding the eating occasions for these for lobster and for these other fish as you talked about is so is such a great opportunity for sure and i think you'll part of engaging consumers on the climate issues that are affecting our oceans mm -hmm. there's no separation between what's happening with climate change on land um, from the ocean i mean oceans right now are responsible for capturing over 90 percent of the earth's heat it's actually the number one defense against climate change but with global warming, the amount of heat that it's capturing, it's acidifying the oceans. It's eroding things like lobster shells, oyster shells, mollusk shells. Mm -hmm. It's you know forcing species to migrate more north. So you have your main lobsters, you know, heading heading towards Canada where the waters are cooler. And it is it is temporary, right? So we have to we really have to engage consumers on enjoying seafood um, and drawing that engagement back to the issues that are facing the oceans and you'll see a lot of us emerging kind of 2.0 seafood brands atlantic sea farms included that are that are really talking about the climate issues as top of mind both as our core values as brands but it's also just the reality that we're not going to have a business if we don't if we don't fix what's going on right um so part of our our mission right is to is to reduce food waste to protect our oceans and um, a lot of that is about storytelling and, you know, not trying to be too alarmist or doomsday about issues that are facing the oceans, but trying to explain that there is actually some opportunity to, to roll things back. Right. Right. And I think that so, so much of, um, you know, I, I don't know, I think COVID has made this worse, right? We're all feeling kind of powerless in the face of these huge issues. Right. And I think climate change is like that and COVID is like that. And so, People don't, you know, providing people small ways to engage is such an important thing in a situation like we're in. For sure. And knowing where your food comes from, I think COVID has definitely affected a lot of change there. I think people are probably a little burnt out from cooking so much at home, but there was silver linings of reconnecting with food, where it comes from, the joy around preparing your own food. And seafood has definitely seen... Uh, an explosive amount of consumption since COVID hit. There's, nice. there's a couple of factors that are that are driving that forward. But how do we how do we make sure that that's being done responsibly? Right. Right. Um, right. That's the big question. Right. And and you know this is like the meat is played by this too. That certifications are good, but they're confusing to consumers. And right. So so building a brand that people can trust um, simplifies all that for people. Sure. And it's like the age old, you know, it's buy local, buy, buy products where you know where they're being produced and they have a transparent supply chain. Typically the closer to home, the better. Um, seafood is, is no different. You know, yes, it might be cheaper to buy product from Indonesia or the Philippines, but you got a question about why that, that product costs the, the, the price that it does. And in comparison to supporting the local fishing communities and economy that exists in Canada and the U S and, uh, much shorter supply chain, less of a footprint. And, you know, to also remove the stigma around, around fresh seafood. I mean, fresh seafood's great. If you have the privilege of being able to enjoy fresh seafood, then that's awesome. But frozen seafood and canned seafood is of no less quality. You know, it's not less nutritious. 
Um, in fact, in some cases, it's even more. Um, right. So, you know, we got to diversify the species, but also break out of the stigma of fresh seafood being the kind of the catch-all um, in the seafood enjoyment experience. Sure, sure. So when you started on the commercial, when, when you started the company, um, how did you start selling? So, I mean, we've been kicking around since 2016. Charlotte, mm -hmm. my, my co-founder I mentioned earlier, um, has been a seafood chef for over 15 years of her career. And she really wanted to, you know, try to restore can, canning in general with all types of food um, as a kind of a packaging format and, and, you know, creating really beautiful foods in the can. And that evolved, you know, from 2016 and 2017 of her really just focusing on, on seafood. So essentially had a, um, an artisan canning operation. Those products were canned but refrigerated. Um, so they had okay. a shelf life of about a month refrigerated. And that was the kind of entry into the Canadian market, working across different farmers markets and independent retailers and a few restaurants. And then really the, the kind of cult following started to bubble up uh, around these products. And Charlotte was, you know, using canning as a way to package her inventive seafood recipes. Mm -hmm. So um, into 2018, um, I, I come back along and started to take a look at opportunities in the category to fully commercialize what Charlotte had been building in that artisan stage. Right. So it took us about 19 months from November of 2018 to a month ago, June 8th, World Ocean Day, to, to bring our first products to market commercially. And, you know, of course, now they're available across Canada and the U.S. Cool. So are, are you in the U.S. now or just in Canada? Yeah, both both Canada and the U.S. Okay. Um, I mean, our, our mission is really about, you know, American and Canadian seafood. So we are available at 50 Whole Foods locations in the Northeast. And then you can okay. buy it direct to consumer on our, our website. And there's a bunch of other um, stores opening up every day. So Okay, cool. So um, has your rollout been impacted by COVID? For sure. Um, we were definitely behind schedule for our our soft launch um, with COVID and delayed yeah. production, our production facility shut down just with, you know, concerns around congregation, multiple workers. So right, right. it definitely affected us. We were meant to launch at Expo West. COVID shut that down. Then we right. Production delays. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we've, we've, we've been okay. Um, very understanding um, of, uh, you know, the current environment. So we were able to adjust, you know, our retailer expectations and distribution. Sure. It's, it's all been smooth since. Yeah. 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 So, um, it sounds like you have an e-commerce, um, you have an e-commerce platform developed. For sure. Direct to consumer sales was not a channel that we were going to be putting much support behind, you know, in the grand scheme of things, Consumers want to be able to aggregate multiple food products when sure. they're when they're shopping, right? And that's why platforms like Thrive Market or Good Eggs, Amazon yeah. are all you know very relevant. Um, but we've been shocked to see the amount of consumers that are that are buying directly from our platform. Um, nice. You know, they're able to experience the products in a more meaningful way, the story behind them, what we stand for, our commitment to responsibility. So um, I think we're going to continue to see consumers move in that direction where they're, they're happy to support, you know, independent brands on their own platforms. Mm -hmm. um, 
and yeah, the, and that is a, also a result of COVID, I think. Um, yeah. You know, there's obviously been a big upswing in, in direct-to-consumer sales and food, um, mm-hmm. both from the individual brand state themselves, and then obviously online grocery continues to, to gain a lot of momentum. Yeah. I mean, I used to, when I would work with brands before COVID, I would, say, I would typically say, of course, you have to have your own website, but, you know, compared to in the grand scheme of things that it's not the highest priority for driving volume in your brand, um, with some exceptions, but now that COVID has, has upended things like it has, it's no longer optional. Like you gotta have one of these. You have to have a, you have to have an online sales strategy. You gotta have a platform. Like you gotta do this now to be relevant. Absolutely. For yeah. sure. And fortunately and I spent product, three years, is like stocking up heaven, right? Yeah, it's a it's a great pantry item. Yeah, and, um, I mean we've designed the products to be flexible, to be used, you know, across different consumption scenarios: breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, so it is a you know nutritious, high protein, really accessible product. So we've got a lot of people actually already coming back, and we even have people asking for subscriptions now. So as we continue to roll out. Wow. more seafood species and different products. Um, you know, you'll be able to get different seafoodery kits and baskets and subscriptions of your favorite seafood species from Scout. Nice. Yeah, so it's it's always a good sign um, when people are asking you for subscriptions, right? Usually people have to work hard to get people on a subscription. So that's a really good sign. For sure. And I think subscription and food, you know, I, it really does work direct-to-consumer for your kind of high frequency um, food products that you're, you're eating very regularly. So breakfast is a great example, right? A brand like Daily Harvest, because a lot of people just crush a smoothie in the morning. Um, you know, you've got Magic Spoon doing cereal. So breakfast foods and a lot of snack foods have tended to do quite well D to C from the individual mm-hmm. um, direct-to-consumer platforms. But moving into lunch and dinner items has been a bit tougher. Um, yeah. For us, we're shelf-stable. The yep. long, long shelf life of a few years, and it's a great pantry item. So we've been delighted at the response that we've gotten from direct to consumer sales. It's actually currently our, our biggest channel. Yeah. 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 I mean, it does not surprise me because when I think about, you know, the kinds of things that were out of stock in grocery stores, because people were using them to stock up, it's like rice and beans and, and yes, tuna fish and, and tomato sauce for pasta. Right. It's, like, oh my God, how the possibility of adding a really good, you know, center of plate fish thing oh my, that would last for two years. It's crazy appealing, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah. We like to think so. So far, oh, so yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. So, so you guys scrambled and got your e-commerce site up and are, are you in, on like in Thrive Market yet or are you, are you aiming to be or... Yeah, Amazon so the next channel is uh, it's all it's all in the works. Um, all in the works. I mean, Whole Foods is our is our biggest uh, kind of retail partner right now, sure. and then uh, we'll be launching into Air One Market in LA, which is a great brand building channel. Yeah, um, and then we've got uh, yeah on, ongoing onboarding with both Amazon and Thrive Market. Nice, nice. So people are going to be able to find you. This is so exciting. Yeah, sure. We're focused on channels that also can help tell stories. I mean, Food 52 is a great online food community. 
you know, they've got millions of subscribers and they're shooting beautiful content, but also really celebrate the home chef and the home cook. Mm -hmm. Um, so they've been a great partner for us. Um, they've, uh, they've had scouts since, since day one when we launched and, um, they've been a, a really great online partner. So we're, we're focused on the right channels that are, you know, able to share our story, um, mm -hmm. staying away from mass grocery right now, really focused right. on the, the right types of channels that you know, celebrate food and have the, the culinary curious hanging out. Yeah, the culinary curious, right. And and I think, you know, when you and I met initially, um, I think you you were you were kind of saying, Well, you know, we wanna we wanna we're in Canada, now we wanna put our toe in the water and and you know, come into the United States. But it sounds like that that all kind of got thrown up in the air with COVID and now you're really in the United States. Yeah, we're, we're, we're focused on the United States as our core market. I mean, it's 90% of the, the team's energy and bandwidth is all on U.S. growth. Um, yeah. You know, the Canadian market is, is great. It's our home. We've got, you know, a great following and a network here. But at the end of the day, um, we're a little peanut in comparison yeah. to the, the market size. Yeah, exactly. States. Yeah. I mean, even here. So we're in Wisconsin. And when I was um, running a cheese company before I ran... Um, before I did the Tara's Way thing, my one of my mentors in the industry was like, Tara, you gotta get your cheese to the coast. Like that's where the people are, right? We gotta go where the market is. So you exactly. so you I'm assuming the coasts, the coasts are gonna be your markets too, sounds like. I mean, they're definitely the hotbeds right now, but that way I partner, that's why I partner like Thrive Market is really important because they do actually bring a lot of healthy, better for you, better for the planet foods to middle America, yeah. um, Midwest and, and surrounding areas. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that with our packaging format, it being shelf stable, that we can introduce the, you know, more middle America consumer to more seafood. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's processed when it's fresh and it's, you know, preserved in that can. Mm -hmm. So as much as we know, we can continue to grow strongly, um, both in, you know, LA and New York, um, we still want to make sure that we can, you know, engage the middle American consumer in seafood. Right, right, right. So how are you promoting your products in Whole Foods? Because, right, you can't be demoing now. So how is that working? Yeah, no demos, not even much uh, promotional campaigns being run right now. Um, so, so far, you know, consumers are, are finding us through our own social media marketing, um, some of our par partnership channels. Um, we're working with, we don't call them influencers, but that would be the traditional industry term for uh -huh. them. But we work with partners that have engaged audiences on social that um, are also introducing Scout. And, you know, it's, it's a fun product to cook with. You kind of challenge consumers yeah. or our partners to, you know, you either use one of the recipes that we've created or try to invent something mm -hmm. on your own. So we're getting a lot of organic content back from people that are having fun uh -huh. inventing new recipes and cooking with those dishes. Uh -huh. So content, partner channels, uh, brand partnerships is really our big driver for brand awareness right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really going to you know continue to be the norm. Um, traditional in-store advertising, promotions, yes, they're still drivers, but because grocery's changing so much, brands are really responsible for driving the majority of their awareness now. The groceries channels don't really do that work for you anymore beyond, you know, a discount tag. 
Wow. So we're, we're really marketing in our own hands and, and using our, our channels and content development and social to get our message out there. So how do you connect um, what you're doing in terms of like social media promotion to, you know, actionable purchase a can in this particular Whole Foods? As a brand, our position when it comes to marketing is not to hard sell. We aren't marketing for sales or marketing to share the story of what our company is about, our mission, the story mm -hmm. behind the products, and that inevitably drives sales. Um, mm -hmm. But we, we're not, uh, the way that we think about marketing, we're not focused on, um, at least right now, like a direct ad is going to have X amount of conversion for mm -hmm. our local Whole Foods account. And that's, that's tough, right? I mean, attributing, attributing offline grocery retail sales is, has always been a difficult task. You, right, you know, right. are, you're, you're spending big money on, you know, promotional advertising in the physical world. And that's a hard um, tracking process to understand if that resulted in the conversion at Whole Foods. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the digital world, obviously much more uh, accessible and easy to track, um, but still a bit of a, a mystery for the, the offline world. So we're, we're holding back until, you know, physical retail gets back to some level of normalcy. Right. Um, and most of the industry is holding back on big promotional spends or in-store sampling or advertising right now as it stands. Right. Well, and you can't, I mean, it's just so hard to even get anybody to execute on anything anyway, right? The people problem in the stores is, is pretty, is pretty daunting. And I, I was sure. just curious about this because it's been a, it's been a very difficult time to launch a new product, right? Just because into traditional retail because of what's going on. For sure. And I, as an emerging brand, we had, we were at this sweet spot, like an inflection point of being ready to launch, had inventory, supply right. chains built, you know, we're ready to go. Our marketing machine is relatively built and ready to press that, that big shiny green button. Um, but we've also have the size and the agility and being nimble as a smaller right. team in an emerging brand to make a lot of rapid changes really fast without, you know, um, really hurting ourselves financially. Right. So that kind of culture now is baked into the DNA of our company of being very agile, knowing that we're in these ever changing and evolving environments. I mean, COVID certainly one thing we haven't even talked about, you know, the, the activism and the protests that are happening sure. right now as a result of George, George Floyd and how that's even affecting, mm -hmm. you know, how to communicate and be active as a brand these days. So lots of societal challenges that are, in a lot of ways, pushing us to build a better business and to be more responsible um, and to be thinking about a contingency and optionality in every decision that we're making. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I, I, um, you know, bigger companies do scenario planning, you know, so they're, they take your, what you're talking about to kind of a, you know, big formal level. Um, and, you know, they tend to do it before big presidential elections and things that have the potential to really change their marketplace. And now it seems like that is just the norm, right? Like we got to have, we got to plan A, B, C, and D here. Otherwise we're God oh, yeah. knows what will happen next. I mean, launching a brand in 2020, if you can launch a brand in 2020, then you're going to have the chops to keep, to keep growing uh, into the future. Cause it yeah. has been an insane year to I mean, launch a business of any kind. Right. Um, we're, we're very grateful that we're in food 
Um, yeah. that we're doing something that's meeting a real need in society yeah. and, and, you know, have, have our, our impact mission attached to that. Um, but it hasn't been so easy for some other brands. So, no. Um, so, so have you, have you seen people like this stock up thing that they're like, no, I think this is great for my pantry. Yeah. And, and, uh, consumers are coming back and purchasing again. So, um, I mean, definitely, we weren't in market when a lot of the panic buying and, and, uh-huh. and canned products happened. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, right now, I think most most people are not in that purchasing behavior anymore, panicking that they're going to run out of mm-hmm. food. Now it's about discovery, and I think there's been this whole renaissance. Not I think, I know there's been this whole renaissance of, you know, pantry items and preserved foods coming back into play and how that's used as an ingredient in composing a larger dish. Yes. Um, and I love seeing that. I mean... As a result of a lot of panic buying, food and culinary media, like your Bon Appetits and your Food 52s, Healthy-ish, really started to celebrate pantry items and weren't really talking about COVID anymore. They're just really celebrating these like underutilized ingredients and it normalized a lot of preserved foods and made them exciting and appealing again. And it's it's breathed in so much fresh air into pantry um, that we really needed, um, you know, and uh, it's very all. What a great thing for you, because that's the kind of thing that you as one small emerging brand, like you can't take that on, right, as a as a theme, but to have an entire culinary industry take it on, on you know, not directly on your behalf, but to benefit you, like how good is that? It's been awesome. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, we had over 20 different articles across the Whoa. New York Times, Vice, you know, you name it, Bon Appetit, that covered canned seafood specifically as a as a category. And wow. they're great articles. You know, I mean, we have the silver lining benefits of that kind of coverage. It wasn't directly about Scout, but it was about, you know, the kind of elevation of canned seafood as a category. And, right. And, and then know, they get on, you know, you're bored at night, trapped at home, and you go online and you search for canned seafood and up comes Scout, right? There you go. Yeah. Sure. So no wonder your your online sales took off. Yeah, I think we had a lot of uh, kind of pent up demand from our, our loyal consumer base in the Canadian market that had been waiting for Scout to kind of reappear the commercialized mm-hmm. version of the products. Um, and I mean, we've had over 150 inbounds uh, from wholesale accounts from across the U.S. And we have no idea how these folks are finding us. But um, it's the result of it being a product category that a lot of channels are looking for yeah, and they're not looking for the same old, same old. They're not looking for more commodity tuna. They're really looking for more diverse species from a brand that is responsible and that has, you know, authentic story and is trying to do some good for the world. Right. So we're, uh, we're actually just trying to manage growth right now. We've got, we've got more demand than we have supply. So we're uh-huh. really trying to ramp up our production and, and mm-hmm. meet the needs of the market. So it's a, it's a good time. That's a good kind of problem to have right now in particular. Shh. Yeah. Champagne problem. Yeah. So, um, so Bunny, do you have, are you, um, financed enough to grow quickly or what, what does that side of your business look like? Yeah. So we, you know, we've got some incredible investors, um, that come from, different parts of CPG and food systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have Almanac, which is um, uh, David Barber's fund, uh, co-founder of Blue Hill and Stone Barnes Center for Agriculture. Um, you know, big food systems thinkers and certainly, you know, uh, rock stars in the American culinary world. 
So they are um, Scout's primary investors. Um, mm-hmm. They've been fantastic. Um, Ellie, who's on our board from Almanac, was at Whole Foods for 10 years as the you know director of new, new product innovation. So she worked with a lot of emerging brands across yeah. the U.S. Um, so that's been a, a tremendous asset. And they're, they're great hands-on folks um, that, are, nice. that are really supporting our growth. And then we've got... Um, Dan Glickberg from the Fairway family, the grocery family. We've got yeah. Wes Crane, the co-founder of Navitas Organics. And then we've got David and Mark, who are the co-founders of Rebel, um, the, the plant-based uh, beverage that's, uh, that, are, that are quite delicious. So a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of support from the CBG yeah. and the food systems world behind Scout. Yeah, no, and people who know the, um, the natural industry, too. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Lots yeah. of, there's combined, there's, there's decades and decades and decades of experience. That's fantastic. So did you raise, so you rose, you raised all this money before you were in the market the second time, like with yeah. the, with the yeah. scalable brand, right? <laughs> hey, That's impressive. It's, uh, you know, we, we have a solid team that ha- has come from, you know, we, we've had past businesses and you know, certainly made it uh, more approachable to engage investors. We've got some some credibility behind us with, with yep. previous ventures, um, but it wasn't easy. You know, we yeah. were we were fundraising for almost a year, um, mm-hmm. and we couldn't. You know, we were constantly bringing in small friends and family checks to kind of right. keep everything moving along. And just enough, um, lost a lot of sleep and lost a lot of hair. But we, right. you know, eventually we're able to build um, an outstanding investment team behind us. So now we're. We're capitalized uh, for, for growth and we're kind of entering nice. that next stage now. And we're, we're pushing into uh, raising a larger round early next year. Early next year. Yeah. And you think that's going to um, stay that that timeline is going to get pushed out because of COVID or, or not? No, no. I think that food is, is moving, um, you know, yeah. it's out of, out of many categories, you know, if you compare it to some other, I guess, investment opportunities, in broader industries, I mean, food is a yeah, is a food great right investable now is a, kind yeah. of a place to be. Yeah, it's the hot spot, right? And you've got yeah. a lot of these. You know, if you if you look at what's happened over the last five years, you have your traditional kind of Silicon Valley investors that are that are you know traditionally only really invested in technology companies. But then you had this explosion of direct to consumer brands that were kind of you know packaging themselves up like they were tech companies. So think about like right. Casper and Everlane. They're at the end of the day, CPG product or service-based companies, but they built themselves up like tech companies. And that brought in a lot of interest now in the consumer packaged goods in, into the investment industry and, and venture capital because direct-to-consumer brands kind of bridge that gap between tech right. and products. Right. And now CPG you know, there's, there's a, I swear there's a fund every day that's coming out that's looking yeah. to invest specifically in CPG now. So it's, it's a very, very big growing VC market. Right. Right. So, so, um, so you don't think the, the schedule is going to get backed up and our, our new, our, um, new, now we're talking bricks and mortar. So bricks and mortar chains are, are, are they interviewing you? Like, are you getting in front of them or is that kind of slowed down because of COVID? Yeah. Buyers have definitely warmed up in the last six weeks in particular. Okay. Uh, we're getting a lot more conversations going on. So I think, right. I think we might be over the, the initial hurdle and be kind of backlog, the frozen part, but yeah. um, there are concerns with, you know, the, the, the amount of new cases in the U.S. right now that that could affect how grocery stores end up behaving, at least in new products and the buyer side. So 
right now things are decent, um, but mm. we're you know ca- cautiously optimistic that's going to continue on in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is this climate is making it very difficult for brands who are underfunded to succeed, right? Because it's just dragging out the process of getting you know getting getting meetings with stores and then getting on the shelf and all that that stuff. So. And a lot of brands that were undercapitalized that they were in, you know, in stores already and undercapitalized are going to have a lot of trouble too. And it's, it's been really tough because there's, look, I have so much empathy for emerging brands. I mean, we are one, we've, we've yeah. gone through this pain, this struggle. And, you know, I obviously connected a lot of other emerging brand founders to share our, our struggles and best practices, yeah. but the, the angel community and food and CPG has been, oversaddled with trying to support emerging companies and the VCs and CPG are, are typically waiting for that one to 2 million in yeah. sales and they're suffocating yeah. smaller brands. Yeah. And, you know, we've got massive funds of hundred million, 150 million, $200 million funds that are, are waiting for, you know, that one to $2 million benchmark, but there are hundreds of emerging brands that have fantastic products and great initial traction. And, you know, they're kind of being forced to raise from the same small group of uh, yeah. angel uh, angel investors in CPG and some of these angel investors are seeing the amount of deal flow that a VC firm with 20 people on their team would see like right. 500 deals a year. And and the CPG angel community cannot continue to support emerging brands. We need to see VC dollars from the, the mm-hmm. CPG funds start to move more downstream, start to do 50, 100K, 200K investments rather than waiting for, you know, that $2 million, you know, revenue growth target before they start making checks. Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic, right? When I when I did Tara's Way, people told me this is the other part of this was, um, you know, uh, so we had uh, Oscar Mayer Craft used to be based here. Um, so I talked to the president, right? And mm-hmm. when I was um, getting my, raising money, and he said, if you get to 10 million in sales, we'll just outright buy you like you don't Um, so, so you don't need a VC firm to come in if you have enough, um, angel funding in your, you know, series A to get yourself to 10 million in sales. I was like, huh, well, that's interesting. And that's essentially what we did. Like we never, we went, we sold to a public company before we ever got money from a VC, which makes me think that I'm not sure how relevant they are. Like how many brands actually get big enough for them to even be relevant? Yeah, and you have these big wins. Like I mean, I can I think of I don't know RX Bar, you know, as, sure. a, as an example of that you know or has Epic this, Bar or somebody, yeah, for sure. Like four or five years in market, yeah. crazy growth. You know, big food comes along and scoops them up. So you know that all. I mean, the, the model's there. I mean, big food brands tend to just continue to grow their portfolios, and all of them are now looking at the natural products industry as the next big lever for growth for themselves. Sure. But um, I think that brands need to think about growth a little bit differently and how they are, you know, meeting their capital requirements. It's it's very hard to access debt as an emerging brand. You pretty much can't unless you've, you know, already made some money in your, your heyday and have a house or some things to get some loans on if you're you know, a younger entrepreneur, or you've been an entrepreneur all your career and you're continuously building new projects to find your winner, it's very hard to find debt. So you're, you're pretty much forced then into selling part of your company 
and raising venture capital. And there's a lot of great VCs out there that can provide a lot of value. There's a lot of terrible ones that don't provide any value. Um, but your, your, your options are very limited. So you're in that awkward phase of, you know, trying to find your capital while trying to grow, trying to reach that one to two million in sales before you can get a real check to help you expedite your right. growth. And, you know, you're, you're typically a few years in before you can get some some great loan options. So it's right. it's tough. And I think that it would be really great to see more downstream funding opportunities from some of the larger VC funds to support the yeah, the, and the, you know, the and they and they resist that because it's so expensive for a little deal. It's as much time as it is to do a big deal, and they're blah blah blah. So there's got to be some more creative thinking about it, right? It just seems like there's this bridge and. And tech does have a version of this problem, right? There's the, in tech, there's this place where people out, outgrow angels and they aren't quite ready for the VCs. So it's not, it's not like nobody has ever heard of this problem before in no. the investment the world. The technology does have a lot of like, accelerators and kind of boot yeah. that are set yeah, up yeah. with funding opportunities to structure that kind of hand off to a larger funding opportunity. And we're starting to see some of that come together in CPG, but... Look, the natural products industry is pretty tight, right? Like the whole community is very interconnected and there's, you know, between New Hope and some of the other larger kind of industry players that are really responsible for a lot of the community interactions. Like there's, there's some great ecosystem financing opportunities that I, I think are upon us. Um, and I, I hope to see things continue to move in that direction. Yeah, no, I, I, I think people are paying more attention. And I think the... You know, I think in some ways there were too many brands of everything um, going into COVID. I, I kind of felt like a shakeout was going to be coming here pretty soon anyway. And this whole yeah. thing has just accelerated it. But it, I think it will expose, as I said, this, um, you know, what is it? Warren Buffett's thing? When the tide goes out, you see he was, was swimming naked. Like there's... there's <laughs> Right. There's there's quite a bit of that, I think, going to happen. And to be a, a well, you know, your timing of being well capitalized, plus it's a product that is is transformative potentially for the pantry. I mean, the, the, all of this ladders up to being positioned really well right now. Like sometimes things just happen, right? It took you since 2016 to get here, but you kind of landed here at the right time in the right place with the right value proposition, oh, right? We would have been way too early. Had we launched commercially in 2016, 17, 18, 19, it was a little bit too early. It's, yeah. Despite it all has been the best time and we have, we're lucky, you know? Yeah. And part of entrepreneurship is definitely luck. Let's, let's call it out. Timing and luck is a big part of the equation to success. And totally. um, we've been fortunate to have those things. And I think to your earlier point, you know, if you walk the expo floor, you'll see how many protein bar companies or how many plant-based whatevers and how many sparkling CBD beverages. And I, right. I do think that this is going to force more innovation. We don't need more me too brands. We need better innovation. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I would say in seafood, it, we could probably count less than 10 seafood brands participating in Expo West. And there's right. over 5,000 that go, what's wrong with that? When you've got, right. you know, 90% of the oceans covered or so the planet's covered in water. Right. Um, you know, we're so disconnected from food and the natural products industry that's harvested from the ocean. So we're all kind of bubbling up together as emerging brands on the seafood and the sea plant based side. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope to see more of us um, you know, come out of the woodwork. Yeah. 
Well, and I, what I love about what your brand is doing in Atlantic Sea Farm too is the, is the supply chain transparency and the link to climate change. Like I think the natural industry emerged from a place where those were kind of core values to the industry. And I'm not so sure how core they became over time. And it would be a very healthy thing for the industry if it got back to those core values that are represented in your brand. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So we've covered so much ground or um, you can't even say ground. It's fish, right? <laughs> <laughs> we've um, covered a lot of that. Some, some there's ocean. some other metaphor that I'm not thinking <laughs> of. Anyway, um, it, have we missed anything that you think I sh it would be important to talk about? No, I think we definitely you know, covered some, some great topics here. I mean, for me, the message that I always I'd like to get across with these types of opportunities, you know, getting to um, introduce our mission and what we're working on at Scout to new, to new folks is, is really just the, the climate action issue that's facing our oceans. I mean, it's facing the planet, but the oceans are the first frontier to actually reverse climate change um, mm -hmm. because they're the number one, you know, defense right now in capturing heat and we're pushing it over the, literally the boiling point and we now have heat waves, you know, that are that are destroying patches of the ocean where no life can 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 continue on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, while we're making delicious food, we're doing it in a more interesting way in a brand that's more relevant. Um, you know, I, I really just challenge people to connect more with that, you know, that lifestyle of oceans, rivers, and lakes. If you enjoy a cottage, you like paddling down a river, if you like to swim or surf or hang out at the beach and have a tan, like that's all gonna go away if we don't if we don't really you know, reconnect with, you know, ocean health, how we're sourcing food, how we're growing food from the ocean. Um, and it's all interconnected, right? So yeah. um, our impact mission is, you know, getting the American consumer to, you know, see more value in preserved foods, in particular preserved seafood as a, as a solution to food waste, because we've got abundance of waste and fresh and frozen seafood. And then secondly, to reinvest a portion of our profits into you know, climate action projects that are measurable that actually have real results on reversing climate change. Right. Um, so that's, that's my kind of send off. Um, cool. You know, we've got some time and um, more people that talk about seafood and, and the culture that exists around oceans, lakes and rivers, we're going to be in better shape. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I look forward to um, stocking up my pantry with Scout. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me and for listening to our story, Tara. I really, I really enjoyed having the conversation with you today. And you guys take care. Hang in there. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.